you know, we're just going to wing this in CFHA podcast team style. All right. That's what we do best. That's what we do best. (laughs) All right. So, hi, everybody out there. I'm Naftali Saran. I'm the executive director of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. And I'm feeling incredibly awkward because usually (laughs) I'm in my office staring at a screen, looking at four boxes, and in those boxes are some people that I consider friends now, even though I just met two of those people for the first time in person, Amber and Grace. So we are here live at the 2018 uh, CFHA Annual Conference uh, in Rochester, New York, this is our first live podcast, so we're actually looking at each other. And we talked about this afterwards, whether this might be a little bit awkward for us, like doing this like and actually looking at each other, where we don't have to like raise our hands when we, when we need to talk and stuff, and we can actually like talk more naturally. So, yeah. So anyway, this is a live experiment. Guys, let's just say hello to the audience out there listening to us. They might be running right now. They might be walking their dog. They might be driving to work. Um, so, yeah, say hello. Hello, this is Deepu George, uh, live from Rochester at our conference, the largest conference yet, right, uh, that CFHA had. Very excited to be here and enjoying the cold. I'm Jeffrey Ring from Los Angeles, with, uh, healthcare consultant and health management associate. So happy to be at this conference where actually um, I-, I can just soak up like the incredible wisdom of so many precious and beloved and brilliant colleagues. It's great. It's Grace Wilson from Great Plains Family Medicine in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And it is very cold, and sadly, I lost my jacket in the airport, and it has not turned on. So I have like oh. a really thin raincoat. You've <laughs> got to be kidding me. Yeah, well, <laughs> my friend Amelia took pity on me and gave me a nice warm scarf to wear. So I've been okay, but it's much colder than Oklahoma. Yeah, I forgot. Actually, I forgot to ask this morning. I wanted to ask if anybody had actually taken up our offer to run at 6 o'clock in the morning. Because I was up at 6 o'clock in the morning. It was dark. Did you see any pictures on the social link? I didn't. I didn't Mm, see any pictures. if they didn't post it, it didn't happen, right? No, I don't think so. And that was the voice of? Amber Gordon. Um, I am from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I am here providing the student perspective of the podcast. Luckily, we're all sitting in a very suddenly well-lit circle, um, <laughs> so we can actually see each other and hopefully not talk over each other too much. But there's, there's a lot of like eye contact and things like that, and I'm really happy to be here with everybody live and in person. Yeah, so to set the stage for folks out there, we're actually in the plenary space. We've finished our plenary which went incredibly late, <laughs> much to my chagrin. But, was worth but we it. made it. It was worth it. It was a really good plenary, and we'll, we'll, you know, we can certainly talk, debrief a little bit about that plenary, including last night's plenary. Well, debriefing, which was awesome. as we learned, is very important. That's so. right. It's one of the one of the C's, right? Um, <laughs> so if you hear like dishes in the background, it's because we're we're live at the conference. There's people putting plates out uh, or taking plates away. Um, as we sit. And we also have two guests. We're going to introduce those guests in a few minutes. Uh, these are folks who we're going to talk to who have come to our conference from very different parts of the world uh, and are going to give us some unique perspectives um, on uh, angles on integrated care. 
But before that, I wanted just to have a, a little bit of a discussion with us as a team around these um, uh, plenaries that we just heard, and in particular, starting with last night's plenary, around it was the seven C's, right? Mm -hmm. Dr. Eduardo Salas. Does anybody remember what the seven C's are? Who's got Jeff raises his hand real fast. He's All like right. our, our A-plus student All here. All right. Um, the first is capability. Um, someone needs to know what their job is in order to be able to, to do it. The second is cooperation. It's this precious and mysterious attitude of really wanting to be part of the team and to get the work done. There's coordination. I can't do my job unless I know my role and know your role and know how we overlap. There's communication, and communication is so broad, but it's as important within the team as it is from the team to other outside um, individuals. There's cognition. Cognition in terms of a shared understanding of why we're doing the work. Like, is there a shared mission and vision? Why do we actually show up, and, and what, are we, what are we doing here? There's coaching, something I actually know a lot about and love. I feel like if we're going to be able to do the work, we will do it better if we have the warm hands and support of a true coach being able to guide us through um, what may be some um, bumps and challenges. Um, and then finally, oh, I love this one too, the conditions. Mm, yeah. We can't do our work unless the senior leadership has created a climate in which people can actually be their best. And as we learn, that is the most important of the seven yeah, C's. Yeah. Everything else will fail if the conditions are not optimal for yeah. teamwork. Yeah. So, so these seven C's, and there was so much that, so many light bulbs that went off to me for me. And I know you guys. I want to hear from you guys about that. I'll just say that that the thing that really struck me was that this teamwork research that Dr. Salas was talking about um, wasn't just centered on healthcare teams. And that was what was really uh, interesting to me, that there are commonalities around teams of human beings working together in general that cross over. Firefighters, uh, air traffic controllers. Astronauts uh, going to Astronauts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that we can learn from that. And also uh, that I, I think some of the things that we've been talking about at CFHA um, and in our circles for many years really coincides well with what Dr. Salas explained the research describes. So there's this piece there that uh, I think also validated a little bit of what we've been trying so hard to work at with integrated care. So th those are my, my quick thoughts. But uh, Deepu, give us a sense of what, what really stood out to you when you're listening to Dr. Salas. I think, the, I think he had a catchy phrase on the slides where he said, I think uh, the challenge or the question is, how do you turn a te uh, team of experts into an expert team? And mm. I think when I look at uh, a medical team, for example, um, I think everybody wants to contribute. Everybody is competent at what they do. But ultimately, that competence um, begins to sort of synchronize into the ultimate care that a patient can receive when we sort of downplay that competence and allow a team intelligence to grow. Uh, and I think one of the things that he said that stuck with me was that uh, a lot of the thing that we think about teamwork is not a linear concept. It's uh, much more circular and dynamic and evolving. I always think about the, the, the term adaptive reserve. Uh, that's sort of the term reserved for PCMH or patient-centered medical homes, that that's what it's supposed to do. 
And I feel like the, the adaptation was such a key thing that came out in his research. Um, the other thing that I've always tried to do uh, for myself and the team that I work with is how do you create psychological safety? And I yeah. think um, Google's research really showed that. The other team, that there's a book uh, called Smarter. I think it's called Smarter, Faster, Better. Um, I'm getting the title wrong probably. But they say Saturday Night Live figured that out much before Google did. And Google spent millions of dollars to <laughs> figure this out. But the basic premise of Saturday Night Live is pitching ideas every week. Uh, and majority of the ideas get rejected right off the bat. But how do you keep people coming to the table and be creative in an environment where your ideas are constantly shot down? Uh, John Stewart, talk for John Stewart. Uh, and the Daily Show team, mm -hmm. they actually do this very well, too. Mm. And part of that is creating a sense of psychological safety. So I think about the, the medical assistant who may have a great insight mm. um, on this patient's history, but is afraid to channel that because mm. of hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think about a medical student who reviews a note from a resident uh, and sort of sees these glaring mistakes and not being able to speak out. Uh, you know, all uh, I see a patient who continuously feels uh, discounted for uh, in one way or the other, but has a difficulty expressing that to the care team. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like psychological safety is a part of, um, I think, what we're all trying to do. I have a bazillion responses to that, but I'm going <laughs> to, you know, I'm going to refrain because Christine Bors students who gave feedback on our podcast, we're going to hear from Christine here in a little bit, uh, said I talk too much on the podcast. So, okay, Grace, why don't you respond? We'll comment on that offline. Right? <laughs> yes. I, I loved, the plenary was just such a great balance of research and evidence and practical application. And I get asked to speak about teamwork pivot to the residents and the graduate medical education program. And I'm always kind of like, Ugh. so I was happy to have some more structure and ideas around what's actually in the literature. So in addition to the psychological safety, which stood out to me a lot, the other piece is when you was talking about communication and you mentioned about sometimes the power of quiet. Mm, and yes. that he, he talked about a time he was in a, restaurant with an open kitchen and they were just so quiet and they weren't really talking but I thought back to the old systems term about uh, my fellow systems theorists about Václavec and the axioms of communication and one of them is that there are many different ways of communicating there's our digital communication which is the words that we use but there's also analog communication which is kind of what you're talking about the difference of our podcast today is I can look across the table and see you nodding along and see oh they know analog communication and there's that piece of what we how we communicate that goes so much beyond the words that we say and so it really inspired me to go home and look at our team and do some observations about not just the verbal ways that we're communicating, but also the things that are being communicated purposely or by accident uh, through all those other channels outside of just our words. So I thought that was really powerful. So cool. Cool stuff. I think to go along with what Grace was saying, that whole shared mental model was really a cool thing to 
to visualize when he was talking about like the best ORs that he sees are, mm. are quiet and um, you know, the rowing teams and different things like that where, and then it, you know, you take that a step further, like how are we basically creating that environment of that shared mental model? And the word that kept coming up for me is trust because he said, you know, with the psychological safety and the shared mental model, team members have to really be able to trust not only that they are safe in their teams and they're able to share their ideas, but that the other team members are going to be able to do their jobs and do them effectively so that no one's, you know, micromanaging. And the other thing that he talked about was the Michael Jordan reference where um, he was reading Michael Jordan's book and Michael Jordan was saying, you know, things didn't really get as good as they got until they got Scottie Pippen, who wasn't necessarily a high scorer, but he, you know, was on top of all the assists and everything like that. So every team needs to have those leaders, but then they also need to be able to have the collaborators. And it's kind of looking into the team, you know, dynamics and figuring out what the best mix is. And it seems like that's where the research is heading, which I think is very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, he said at, at the very end uh, something that I think I was thinking along, which is, you know, if you're going to pick one of the C's, which one are you going to pick? <laughs> I think he said, someone said, if you if you put, put a, gun a gun to gun my to head, head. <laughs> which one am I going to pick? Because obviously you want all the, the C's to be there. Um, uh, and you mentioned this a little bit, uh, Deepu, in your comments. The context um, uh, was the C that he would pick. And that was really interesting to me because in, in the work that I've done, we're going to talk probably a little bit about TA in a moment here, but when, when we're providing technical assistance, one of the things that has struck me when we're trying to implement integrated care programs and systems is that um, oftentimes, no matter how hard we work to uh, integrate a behavioral health provider um, or integrate a medical provider into behavioral health, health setting, um, if the setting of the organization is poisoned in some particular fashion, uh, we can only be so efficacious with our integration efforts. Um, and that could be anything from uh, a really sort of a burnt out medical staff uh, that sets an atmosphere and conditions that are, uh, are just really uh, poisonous to the communication and to collaboration, et cetera. It could be an administrative issue. Sometimes it can even be environmental, you know, where a, a, a clinic is just not taken care of physically. And, and people are working out of closets and uh, spaces that are not conducive. Um, and so it really struck me that um, what we're trying to do with integrated care is so much bigger. We're, we're focused. Our focus is on integrating behavioral health, but in essence, what we're really trying to do is create uh, better teams in healthcare, and we need better conditions to do that. Um, and, and so, the corollary to that is sometimes the benefit of working on integrated care for a system is that it highlights for the system where those context issues are. And I have seen some light bulbs turn on for administrators who realize, you know, we've got burnt out providers. I didn't go in there to help them with their burnt out providers. I went in to integrate, help them integrate behavioral health. But they figure out, oh, we, we have conditions here that are not good conditions for everyone to operate in. So uh, I think that's something that I, I'm going to sort of 
take home and keep at the top of my awareness. What I really resonated to was the comment about how multidisciplinary teams lead and facilitate innovation. I thought that was really interesting and I think it's important, right? It makes sense. The more different kinds of worldviews and experience that you can bring to um, you know, uh, solving a problem, the richer. What Dr. Salas did not talk about, and would have been my question, mm-hmm. and Dr. Neftali allowed for questions <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> was the following. And, and maybe you all have some ideas about this. How do high-functioning teams deal with the other kind of diversity? How do high-functioning teams deal with the power relationships across race and ethnicity, and across gender and sexual orientation, and all of those oppressive dynamics in the larger world that certainly impact teams. And what needs to happen to really sort of the the rocket fuel performance for a team? What work do they have to do to sort of overcome all of those those roadblocks? I I don't know if you all have thoughts about that piece. That's what I would have loved to have chatted with him more about. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's not a, a that's not a tiny question. That's a big there. question. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, so, what are, if you're listening to this podcast, if you could please yeah, email call, Jeff Ring. Call uh, uh, Jeff He would Ring. like to speak with you further. That's right. Yeah. 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 So no, maybe but, it's another discussion for another day. But, no. but but clearly teams must do that self-reflection piece yeah. and it's linked to safety mm-hmm. and empowerment and enlightened leadership for teams to actually Well, and I had a similar thought related to that from a practical standpoint, being, you know, my professional home is primary care. Where do you find the time for that, right? And where do you find the space? I, I, I do believe that part of the work I've done in integrated care has been very much so in developing the team and developing space for that team in small ways. Uh, things like uh, just the debriefing after a visit with a patient and noticing that the provider has some stress, some burden related to that patient and then just noticing that with the provider in, in 30 seconds and then seeing the provider's shoulders just sort of relax a little bit as they have some space to do that self-reflection, right? Uh, but in the pace of primary care, and I think it's also true in hospital settings um, and other medical settings, it can be really tough to find that space to do it. And so then over time, that I think it accumulates. People go to go home, go to their, each their separate ways. And then, you know, I think what Dr. Salas would say is that that probably erodes some of the seas over time. So... And I don't know, maybe anybody else knows of, of things that you do at your clinics or things you've seen that work to, to create that space other than having a, a, a sensitized team member, you know, who does that. I mean, do, do you have other paradigms, experiences, thoughts about that? I think about uh, the, the conditions factor. Uh, coming back to your question about the external world, uh, the oppressive conditions that are externally, and how does it get ameliorated or changed in a high-functioning team, I think sort of setting expectations from the beginning. I mean, uh, there, uh, there's, I think, UT Health Austin, they have these IPUs or um, integrated practice units, and they have, from the top up, from the finance to operations people, they have an expectation that there's a weekly team meeting. 
where they review uh, tough cases and also figure out communication and other challenges. And so it's ordered and designed from the top down. So I think part of the role of a sensitive team member who is aware of context is also in their own role. How do you privilege other voices uh, intentionally and mindfully, uh, almost making it a repeated habit, perhaps part mm. of a policy, mm -hmm. um, or sort of making sure you speak to um, the, the medical assistant, you know, who may be uh, in a minority position, not just out of the professional uh, sense of things, but also class, race, gender, economic status, and other right. things, right? So making sure that you're calling on somebody else that you normally wouldn't because of their social location is slightly different and they can offer a vantage point that's you know, different. And then I think internally, at least one of the things that I draw a lot of inspiration from is uh, like servant leadership. So mm -hmm. uh, the number of times that I've said uh, I messed up um, and I want to apologize for uh, the way I addressed something in last week's meeting um, and sort of personally going and talking to uh, my team members about that. Um, I think I think it allows me to build a stronger relationship, hopefully, uh, but I think it allows them to have the freedom to do that themselves. Um, at least that's two ways I think about your logical question. <laughs> you know, Simon Sinek, who um, does all, has written you know, books about leadership yeah. and does these great um, uh, TED Talks, he says that extraordinary leaders take care of the person to the left of them take care of the person to the right. It's so simple and so hard and so beautifully expressed. And I think this is part of that. Yeah. To be able to really take care of the person to the left of you and the right of you means you have to see them and know them and understand them and understand their role and as a leader be a fierce um, voice inclusive and acceptance and invitation for yeah. value of diverse voices. Yeah, that's right. I was going to say, and Dr. Salas also really drove home the point of the, the debrief, the power of the, the debrief in effective teams. So that mm -hmm. was definitely a takeaway for me to not just save everything for supervision, you know, at the end of the week and mm -hmm. then try to, like, remember everything and, you know, to, as, you know, an intern, reach out to the people around me when I need help, you know, if there's a really tough client that I'm emotionally triggered by and I'm having a hard time moving from session to session to go find somebody with an open door yeah. um, to be like, hey, can I take three to five minutes to just talk about this um, with you and have an effective debrief so that I can kind of clear that and then move on to, you know, whatever it is that I'm doing next. So I definitely yeah. am going to try to implement that myself. Uh, Amber, that's such a great point. In my training, that's why I, when I I should say in my training, in the way that I train students, um, that's why I prioritize the preceptor model, which um, does come from the medical world of training, where you have an opportunity to provide feedback right away. And so I'd have a, patient, a, a student go in to see a patient, come right out. Um, I'd go in there sometimes with them, sometimes they come out. We get immediate debrief around what happened. And the shape, little by little, mold their experience of providing care and managing the systems, managing the team dynamics in the moment. I think so much of what I see that becomes uh, sort of erosive, if that's even a word, 
uh, but what erodes teams is that whole dynamic that you just mentioned that's like you save things up for yeah. either the time that you can gossip as a team <laughs> or the random occurrence when we get to talk about what's really affecting us or some patient situation that really affected our team or um, and, and to your point Deepu I think I think the thing that I'm seeing is that good effective teams don't do this randomly no. They do it as, as a function and a process that's right. deeply embedded in who they are. And they have leaders that uh, make sure, that ensure that that process happens. And uh, I was thinking of the two of you, Grace and Deepu, because I think in some ways residency programs have an advantage. Because there are some processes built in, right, for some reflection. I'm guessing you guys have, you know, weekly resident trainings, uh, training sessions, and other opportunities for that. Is, that, is that. is my perception accurate that somehow residents have that sort of advantage? I think that there's space for it, but it still has to be intentional. So there are intentional pieces that I've built for our residents that are opportunities for reflection or balance groups are common or you know, other kinds of debriefing time, but the the disadvantage for residents, I think, is they're all scattered in different directions every day. Mm. So they're not coming to the same clinic in the same place with the same staff because they have various monthly rotations. And then, you know, every year you have turnover in your staff or more often. And so there's advantages and disadvantages, but that is something that has been a big passion area for me in our program okay. is to try to build spaces so for reflection, build spaces for that connection and debriefing and building that psychological safety because it's kind of getting off into a different discussion. But if you look into the research on burnout, all of the risk factors of burnout are like a checklist for residency education. And so we need residents and residency training programs need that space to create safety opportunities but it doesn't happen by accident so yeah. it has to be uh, there has to be a champion yeah it has to be intentional yeah yeah no i would agree so um yeah some great thoughts from dr salas i think we can all agree it was impactful um and yeah we'll probably be talking about it from this point forward as a team and as an organization uh, i want to make sure to bring in our special guests today uh, as well into the conversation. Um, we invited a couple of uh, folks we grabbed as attendees. Um, we literally just grabbed them. We're like, hey, yeah. you, come here. Put yeah. this microphone on. And, he, and they came. It was and amazing. Came. Uh, but you know they were on our list to talk to anyway because of the unique perspectives they bring to the world of integrated care. So I'd like to introduce um, uh, David Humphrey. Um and David, give us a little bit of the context of where you're coming from and, and how in the world you got connected with CFHA across the Atlantic Ocean. Hi, um, I'm really pleased to be here again. This is the, this is the kind of fourth conference I've attended and I just, I just love to be here. Um, I'm a family therapist, so this feels to me like a great place to think about systems ideas and how they apply to organizations and to families and to patients and as people can tell from my accent I'm based in the UK um, I work in a primary care setting in Hertfordshire in the UK and I'm a family therapist in that setting 
Um, it's quite complicated because there is no provision currently for having a family therapist in a primary care setting. So that's a slightly complicated element of the situation I find myself in. Um, the situation in the UK is interesting as far as integrated care is concerned at the moment. Um, the backstory, which is also my backstory as far as CFHA is concerned, is that in the 90s there was a lot of interest in the kind of stuff that was being done here with people like Susan Daniel and Rochester, biopsychosocial model, particularly in family therapy. Family therapy really kind of laid hold of that and, and ran with that, and I think people were really, really interested. I was working in a primary care setting then and thought this just makes so much sense. This is this you know, I was working shoulder to shoulder with primary care physicians. I just this just seemed to me the most logical thing to be doing. And I was working across the lifespan. I would work with families, I would work with children, I would work with older adults, I would work with whoever. And we had a great relationship. Um, Somewhere along the line, and for lots of complicated reasons, interest seemed to start to wane, even within the kind of family therapy world in collaborative, integrated care. Mine didn't, but then I was kind of a bit out of step, really. Um, and part of the reason for that was is that it was it was very difficult at that point to, in, a, in the National Health Service, if you remember it's the National Health Service, which is, if you like, established and maintained by statute, so anything that happens has, has got a law attached to it and a regulation attached to it. So at that time, which was in the late 90s into the 2000s, um, Primary care physicians were given their own budgets. So if they wanted to appoint a family therapist to work, that was cool. If they wanted to not appoint anybody, that was okay. I mean, I wouldn't say it was cool, but that was okay. Um, <laughs> or if they wanted a counsellor or whatever else it was. And the net effect of that was that things were actually pretty inconsistent across the piece. You know, some places were great, some places weren't great. And so by mid-2000, 2007, decisions were made that couldn't, that couldn't continue like that. It was, it was becoming increasingly a problem with mental health because people with mild to moderate start conditions were just, were just, some places were great, they would be, they would be seen, other places would never be seen, they would access it easily, no obvious care. They, they introduced something which is, you know, as, as I think has been given a lot of uh, credit, which was um, a, what we call it improving access to psychological therapies, and it's basically um, CBT trained teams across the country which are called primary mental health teams and which um, provide mental health services to GP practice, to primary care practice. The original idea is, is they would be co-located. So what happened these, this would, um, I think, right, right. to me that made a lot of sense. Sure. However, 
the politics intervened, the practicalities intervened, and with a few exceptions, they are not co-located. They are located within secondary mental health services. So one of what seemed to me, you know, is almost a, a prerequisite of, of delivering collaborative integrated care, it doesn't exist. So there yeah. is a less primary mental health team and primary care physicians refer into those. They are only trained in CBT and you know, I'm CBT's an evidence-based treatment. Mm -hmm. That's right, I'm not, I don't issue with CBT, but that's all they're trained in. Interestingly enough, they are not, again, on the, in terms of the contract, allowed to work with anybody else. So if, for instance, you rocked up with your mother, suppose you're a 30-year-old man and you bring your mother along, she has to stay in the waiting room. She, there's no provision to bring her into the room and involve her in that treatment. I mean, well, all right, let's assume we've got consent, etc. Et sure. There's no provision to do that. The only provision for working with more than one person is where there's a, there's a small cohort of therapists who are trained as couple therapists. So that's okay. Apart from that, there's no provision. So, so David, just to, when you say no provision, does that mean no payment? There's, yeah, there's just no... Yeah, no way paid. So I'm... You've probably already worked this out. I'm working as a family therapist in a primary care setting. I rent my consulting room from the primary care setting. I see people independently there right. who pay me. Right. But I also see referrals from the primary care physicians on a pro bono basis. Oh. <laughs> wow. Because and I love these guys. You know, yeah. these guys have offered to pay me out of their own pocket. Hmm. Wow. But there is no provision. There is just nothing. Yeah. I'll just pause for a moment and just celebrate, David, this extraordinary work that you're doing. Yeah. From your yeah. heart, yeah. from your <laughs> compassion, because you care, because you have a vision of whole person yeah. care. I mean, I just want to, like, hug you and thank you for that on behalf of that precious community. And this might be the only instance where... Uh, we as Americans can feel better than uh, <laughs> this might be the only one. So let's celebrate the one instance. Thanks for that. Yeah. No, it's it's wow. a yeah, it's a fascinating uh, uh, example of how something that is so intuitively important for the health system, but has met resistance. Now you and I talked a year ago about this, and I remember this conversation. Yeah. Um, so there's there's barriers and resistance from a couple. In just a, a couple of words here, um, tell us a little bit about those barriers. I know that some of it was uh, from all sides, right? So some of it's from the, the practitioner, mental health practitioner yeah. side. Yeah. Some of it's from the family therapy side. Absolutely. Some of it's from the uh, regulatory side. Yeah. Said. So just give us a few instances of that and how difficult it is for you as a champion of integrated care to kind of combat that. Okay. For me, an example of, say, the, the resistance in the professional resistance is, as you you know, I chose to promote the conference in the UK. That I took that on thinking this is this is going to be this is going to be straightforward. All I need to do is to get in touch with various professional organisations. I mean, I belong to four or 
by a different professional organization. So look, I'm, I go to this great conference, it's really interesting. You guys talk about, you know, at the, the national level, integration is talked about. There are, there are initiatives to develop integration, which is logical. The first thing I found is that with several of them, including the two family therapy organisations that I belong to, you know, which are involved in my registration, there was no way I could do that. There was no, I could pay them to run an advert for the conference. There is no listserv. There is actually no straightforward way. One, there is I've worked with these guys. I trained actually with these guys. But there is no way of me sharing a message with a bunch of other people. Just people who are in the... <laughs> it then happened with several others. So I ended up being devious with the British Psychological Society. <laughs> I belong to this little kind of small subgroup. I spoke to a guy there and I kind of sold him the idea and he said, I don't know whether we're going to sell this to the to the, uh, the guys in charge, but you know what, well, we'll have a go. And he did. But it was, it was like, how does that work? Why, why, why is this? Some I never broke, I could, primary care physicians. Yeah. Again, they would place an advert. No way I could find a way into this. And I yeah. put some legwork into trying to get in. So there's a disconnect, it seems to me, between you said there's these national initiatives that people talk. Because yeah. I, I have seen yeah, uh, things out of the NHS, uh, around in integrated care, et cetera. But there's a yeah. disconnect between the provider groups and the associations and yeah. Yeah. some some people at the top who are thinking this might be a good idea. Yeah. 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 And, and I think it's, it, it's, it, it seems to me that what it throws up is... There's an absence, an absence, an absence of any kind of organisation that can be both a focus and a, an opportunity for people who have interests yeah. to come together. And that's what I think, for me, CFHA does and has done over the last 20 years. Um, and I think that's where... Well, I, what I would like to do would be like to, to work and develop that. So I've got some ideas about how to do that. Um, I've tried, I mean, I tried various methods, but uh, I've kind of realised that... Uh, I think what I tried to do is I tried to get this kind of access some of the, the kind of policy situation. Ah, people who develop policy, if I go along to them and sell this, they'll think this is a great idea. And I went along and I saw the boss man and he kind of looked at me, nodded me, took the cards and I passed it to the relevant guy and then I saw the relevant guy by chance and I pitched it again to him and that was last October. No, actually it was last November, I'm sorry. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And I never get to hire So I yeah. figured, this is, this is the... Well, well we're... We're officially giving voice to you, to whatever UK listeners we have, and we will hopefully get some new UK listeners. Come and rally so, around. Yeah, so this is, the, this is the starting point. This is the point at which we launch this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, so thank you so much uh, for giving us that uh, brief synopsis. I know there's a whole lot of narrative behind that synopsis, but thank you so much for giving us that insight um, into what's happening across the way which mirrors some of the work we've done here. We happen to be a little bit further ahead, but 
there are practitioners here, and especially in many states, where states kind of rule the integrated care game here in the U.S., where there are some states that are much more difficult than other states uh, to get this along. So there are practitioners here who would say, you know what, we're kind of the U.K. of the United States when it comes to integrated <laughs> care. So you'll, I'm, I know you found lots of compatriots oh, here. Texas may be being one. <laughs> well, well, actually, that's a good point, because Texas was a black hole for integrated care uh, up until a few years ago. We had our yeah. conference there in Austin. I believe it was 2000, 2011 or something. Yeah. something. Something in that early 2000s. And I remember going there, and things were at a really basic, basic level. Yeah. It's been really encouraging to see folks like Deepu and others. Now, now Texas, I believe Texas is our second largest contingent at this conference. Wow. Oh. Yeah, we have 10 from the Rio Grande Valley. So. Yeah. 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 And this is our biggest ever conference, so it's a substantial number from that state. So hopefully some, some encouragement there that it can be done. Uh, but, boy, we feel for you, David, because we know how hard it, that, uh, it is to push that rock uphill. Yeah, I get the image of the lone wolf, <laughs> driven by values and passion. Yeah. You're going to go down in the history books. I can just feel yeah. it. Don't, yeah. don't give up. Don't give up. They're going to well, have an award named after you and everything. I can see it. Hey, so but, but that is a big function of CFHA. Yeah. And why I think David's thinking, like, hey, we need something like this in the U.K. because uh, there's lots of lone wolves out there. Yeah. I, I was a lone wolf in uh, 2001 and had no cohort to speak of to talk to about what I was trying to attempt at my primary care clinic. And a few years later, I found CFHA. It's life-saving because you need that professional encouragement, that sense of home. This, yeah, some sense some, of home, and we're getting, yeah. and we're going in some direction that's meaningful to not just me and me myself and I. Did I hear right that next year's CFHA conference is actually in London? <laughs> <laughs> We're going international. Oh, if, Start hey, saving now, friends. Hey, stop putting ideas that create more work <laughs> for me. But I would absolutely love that. That would be tremendous. All right. So we also have another guest here with us, and that's uh, a good friend of mine, Christine Boris, former partner in crime at the Center of Excellence, now with Arizona State University's uh, Doctor of Behavioral Health Program. And uh, Christine, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here because I know that we want to talk shop here. However, the thing I always think about with Christine is... Her and yeah, we work together, so there's probably a lot of stories that she doesn't want me to tell right now. <laughs> but this is a great story. The thing I always think about with you, Christine, is how you met your husband. Oh, yeah. So, can you please give the listeners your falling in love story, which is the absolute most romantic throughout the notebook? This is the way it's to be done. Thank you. Some people say it's a little creepy, but I love romance. <laughs> creepy romance, delirium. I mean, it's all. I um, was living in Northwest Indiana. I went to Purdue for my master's program, um, and I was coming home from my little brother's graduation party in Michigan. I stopped at a rest area where I'd come for a break, um, and I went back to my car and went to start it, and it wasn't starting. It wasn't starting. I was like, wait, I was just at the gas station. It was fine. Um, so I popped the hood, and I was, I was literally just tapping on things. I mean, just like, I have no idea anything, and I'm tapping on things, and this man comes up and he says, can I, can I help you? Um, I am a total idiot, and I just locked my keys in my car 
right next to you, parked right next to you. Um, and I have a tow truck coming. So if you want, we can see if they can um, help you out too. And they looked at him, and, and I was about to say, oh, no, I got, you know, I'm an independent <laughs> woman. I got, and I'm like, Actually, hair flip can't help me. Um, and the rest was history. We sat on the curb of that rest area for a couple hours talking. We had to go through a family tree that night to make sure we weren't related somehow. Um, and he was finishing med school in Chicago, and we have been inseparable ever since. And so, wow, three kids later, almost ten years and three kids later. That's amazing. Uh, isn't that the, yeah, isn't no, that, the that trumps start? the notebook, like, hands down. I mean, and not to mention a lot of our date nights involve, like, great research ideas that involve, like, integrated care and specialty care. Hashtag nerd love. Yeah, I know, right? I, I thought you were going to say date nights are like car shows. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a rest area. Was it in Michigan? Indiana Center, and so I was just, we were driving to a conference last week actually in Chicago, um, and we stopped at the rest area, so uh, now we're those weirdos who take selfies with the Indiana Welcome Center. I think you can write up the story. Uh, it's actually, if you Google, I'll link to it on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And do you guys give each other like AAA for Christmas, <laughs> like every year? <laughs> Um, yeah, CNN did a feature, our little feature on it. So. For real? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, see, yeah. she's it was like how we met. Greg wrote it up. And Dang it. See, so CNN scooped us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought we were the ones who were going to be Super telling the story to the world. Now, all right. Well, Christine, give us a little bit of insight here um, into the student world. All right. This is a new era for students. Um, your cohort, my cohort had a different world to enter into. Um, tell me what, what your students um, are, are looking at when they go uh, and look at the world. Are, are they getting it differently than, than those of us who kind of had to be retrained? Or, or, or are they still facing some of the same sort of issues with needing to be retrained and re refigure their, their thinking around integrated care? Yes and no. I think one of the things that I love most about where I'm at now is that we are seriously attacking the workforce development problem, okay. um, which for many of us on the ground, you know, we understand that people are saying, you know, we want to do this. It's not, a, not we're not convincing people as much anymore that you, know, you need to integrate. But now sites are asking, okay, but how and who? who? And the question is, I, I don't know, because there aren't a lot of hands-on opportunities to retrain, you know, mental health clinicians to work in medical settings. And so our, my students are all, we have clinical and management students. And I think it's really, it helps me feel really optimistic about where we're heading because we're kind of taking a multi-pronged approach, as we know, and all that that we really need to do. So we have these management students now who are out working in healthcare and say, I know this is important enough that I am dedicating all of my extra time and energy and time of that. But they're devoting everything they have to learning more about it so that when they go to their jobs in healthcare management, they can be huge champions for integration. Um, and the same is true for now these fully licensed clinical students that I have who are out in the world saying, okay, Missing, and I need to make it better. And what's great is that they're in their places right now 
and they, you know, they attend lecture Monday night, and then they go to work Tuesday morning, and they can apply it. And it's not just say, I'm going to school full time, and you know, maybe I have my. I mean, they do have an internship. Yeah, yeah, on yeah. Top of work. But if we're seeing this happening in real time, that they're saying, oh my gosh, I applied that concept to work, and it actually, I saw some change, and that was that was great. I see that's what I was going to master. And I think that. I read a really interesting article on the Google side, but you know me well enough to know that I love the side. Um, it was a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education a few months back, I think. It, a woman had talked about how online education is a feminist issue, and it was fascinating hmm. to me because I know that for myself, I have three kids flying under right now. My husband is a trauma surgeon. You know, there's not a lot of flexibility in that, and the beauty of my job is that I can do it from my house in my yoga pants at all weird, crazy hours. I can take a break to take the kids to the doctor or to go to a school thing. Right. Um, and that's very much the life my students are living too. They are working full time jobs, they have families, they are just trying to make it work. And I'm so amazed, I mean, on a weekly basis, when I think of all the things they're going through yeah. to get that paper in on time, yeah. they think that, this, that healthcare needs to change. And that yeah. is so inspiring. Um, with that, I think, um, I'm not sure what other programs look like, but ours, three quarters of our students are women. Hmm. Um, and more than half are historically underrepresented people, which I think is amazing that we are reaching all of these groups who usually wouldn't be able to say, oh, you know what, I'd like a doctoral degree. I'm going to drop everything and go to class every day for the next three years because it's just not feasible. And so I think that we're really, really diversifying the workforce in healthcare, which really goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which I was saying, um, that we need to reach out and see how we can empower teams so that we're not just making sure we're, we're you know, diverse clinically, right. but also that we are representing the healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> I think the thing that that struck me about it is that, um, in a way, what you're talking about is an innovation, not just in integrated care, but an innovation in in educating the workforce and refiguring the workforce, right? Because most of us, if I look around our table here, we were all trained in fairly traditional fashions, right? No. No. I went to online school okay so, so yeah so yeah. amber our student rep here yeah, is yeah. part of the next generation my students loved amber the student rep when they had when they listened to the podcast yeah, like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I just, i'm like just conflicting the position of not knowing i'm like hey what's that can we talk about that but they seem to like it they keep letting me come back so it works out but yeah no that i, I think i think that's that's a, a key piece here when we think about workforce development and refiguring the workforce probably actually has some relevance to what needs to happen in the UK when we think about David's situation, that that the traditional ways of creating the workforce are probably not the only solution, maybe not even the main solution, and the layer on top of that that goes to um, uh, what Jeffrey was talking about is that actually there is a, an empowerment factor with going outside the traditional training paradigm that is a sort of a side effect of this whole innovation piece, right? Uh, that, that may be empowering to uh, underrepresented groups, women, uh, ethnic and racial minorities, et cetera. 
I had never connected that, honestly, until this moment. Maybe I'm slow? Have you guys heard of that before? Well, well, I would just be so interested in being able to hear from the learners about why they've chosen this path and how many of those inspiration or calling stories have to do with experiences in healthcare suboptimal in their own lives. Right. I mean, that is my story. I went back to school for medical family therapy after dealing with, you know, really serious chronic illness and not really getting the care that I needed and not having the mental health care support as part of you know, the care that I did receive. And I was like, wow, there's this huge gap here for, you know, mental health care and having this whole mind-body thing, like, what can I do to be part of the change? And when I was looking at schools, I was still undergoing treatments. I'm like, I can't drop everything and go to class. I can't do the transportation, everything like that. And I found my program um, through North Central University, and it was 100% online and it's been awesome and amazing and I'm able to be here with all of you and luckily I'm also doing well um, but that was a big part of me being able to find my purpose and fulfill my calling. So I have a question for you about that. Since your career path is fueled by advocacy, Mm -hmm. do you live that and experience and feel and think about that advocacy voice um, in the course of your everyday work? Oh yeah, every every day, every second of every day. Um, my mom's actually a master's trained public health um, nurse, and so uh, my experience was with chronic Lyme disease, and so she's actually taken up a torch, and um, she runs a support group. I help with that. Um, I have an online support group um, that I run for anyone who's kind of dealing with chronic illness. It's called Chronic Illness Champions. It's on Facebook. Um, <laughs> plug, there. plug, plug. But yeah, but you know, and when I, you know, I do get a lot of referrals with, you know, where I'm at right now as an intern for people dealing with chronic illness, and a lot of times the therapists are like, I'm, I'm stuck. I don't know how to talk to, you know, this person. You know, can can I transfer them, you know, to your care? And um, it's really helped me to be able to support people and give them a voice and to help them learn how to advocate for themselves. Uh, so, and that's like also empowered me just, you know, as a consumer, but then also as somebody who's a provider at the same time. So Christine, um, yeah, it just occurs to me, I, I just have a richer understanding and appreciation for what the importance is of what you're doing uh, that I didn't have before this podcast. And something I think for our, our listeners to take home with them as well, as far as just thinking through that that training the new workforce means stepping outside of our paradigms of what we believe training to be and and then looking to be inclusive uh, of yeah in, in that process you know thinking through that I, I, that's just something that's really uh, fascinating about what you're doing and what you're, the folks at ASU are doing. And what jumps out at me about that too, it's about access, right? So we mm-hmm. talk about integrated care as improving access. And so now we are saying we're improving access through multiple mediums of getting the competencies that you need to be part of this movement. And so, and um, because we have integrated teams, access is now much more easier. It's available, right? And now there's online education that allows a lot of people who would traditionally never get that uh, have an opportunity to get that. Am I also right, Christine, that Arizona State University um, not only training students themselves, but also you offer conferences and trainings for larger participation? We do in March, in the beginning of March, and I 
she okay, I, I will give Grace all of the information. It's very cool. Um, it's another way because you know sometimes you like boost. It's been a few months in CFHA. Integrated your own show. We have a, a ton of students that come to to the Integrated Healthcare Conference that's in sunny, beautiful um, Phoenix. I can't actually think of which one's Scottsdale. Um, yes. So if anybody's ready for a break around March, it's a great time to come and just connect with different people. And I think that that's what's really refreshing to me, too, is not only are we, if we're coming from an integrated care perspective, we're saying, okay, great, we're opening this up to let other people come in so that we can train more people. But they're changing the way that we are thinking about integration, which I think is really important. We're having people come from all different walks and settings, and it's like, oh, yeah, we can do integration. We should do integration there, too. And if we were sticking to the status quo or just keeping inside this box that we're in and have been in for so long, um, I think we're missing the boat. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the reasons why I asked the two of you to come in particular is to get a sense of the diverse opportunities that are there um, in that respect. I mean, that's the thing that has struck me as executive director in just, uh, I don't know, year and a half that I've been executive director. Uh, the opportunities to integrate are broad and deep. So, so this is the nature of our conversation today, right? So look at this breath. We see, look, there's these international issues um, that mirror in some ways what's happening here and has happened here in the United States. Um, that there are areas to work on to make care better there. Um, and, but then we're, we're, we're reflecting on the seven C's and thinking about how this actually is much more than integrating behavioral health and mental health. We're going deep into teams and healthcare teams that cut across all sorts of different settings. Um, and then, Christine, what you're saying about the fact that integration is occurring in multiple kinds of settings, even within, say, one category like primary care, it's different doing primary care at a community health center versus uh, a private clinic versus an HMO setting versus an academic setting, et cetera. And each of those has different opportunities and approaches to, uh, to doing integrated care. And that sort of breadth is both exciting. Sometimes it feels a little daunting from my angle. <laughs> How do we create a community around this, right, um, that encompasses all these people? Uh, but I think it's helpful to see that and to respect that and to honor that because it means um, if we're going to be an integrated care community, we have to be an, an inclusive integrated care community of all of those folks. And even sitting around this table, just a quick uh, kind of poll here of your discipline. So, David, you're a family therapist, yeah. trained family therapist, right? Yeah. And so what what's, is the equivalent degree here in the United States, just uh, MFT, for example? Yeah. Yeah. MFT would be equivalent degree. Equivalent degree, yeah. 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 Christine? Uh, PhD in medical family therapy. Mm -hmm. It's a medical family therapy. We were colleagues. Mm -hmm. yeah. PhD in community and clinical psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, well, technically PhD in human development and family science, uh, mm -hmm. but in family therapy. Yeah. And I'm a clinical psychologist. And a recent master's degree, um, medical family therapy. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, we know that there's attendees who actually come from a variety of other sort of uh, training backgrounds as well. Yeah, and there's actually several. I've met several statisticians here who specialize yeah. in some from the Rio Grande Valley. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. <laughs> we are representing big tents. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Population yeah. health is in the house. Yeah, yeah. it is yeah. in the house, yeah. yeah. So it's this breath, I think, that is a, a, another piece of the take-home, uh, that when we speak about integrated care, we speak about this 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 breath. breath. Um, yeah. Well, a rich conversation this morning. Any final thoughts? Uh, any things that you guys are triggered to talk about? Well, I will certainly put in a budget request for us to do podcasts together. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the, no, they uh, talk about 3D experiences, right? This is right. a three-dimensional experience, yeah. <laughs> as well, real as it gets. Not only that, but but we we also, I don't know if the listeners are picking up on that. So I'm looking at the waveforms here. It doesn't look like they're picking up too much on like all the clinking glasses <laughs> and the noise around it. Yeah. If, if you have, as listeners heard that, they've been setting up the ballroom for you know, tomorrow's plenary session and all that. So, uh, actually, no, for lunch. 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 Yeah. <laughs> he just skipped right over yeah, lunch and lunch. dinner, right? Yeah, to tomorrow. To uh, so, uh, our apologies if you did hear some of that in the background. Uh, but I just want to say, so cool to see you guys live and in person. Just, yeah, this yeah, really is great. We get to do this once a month uh, in screens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and speaking of which, Jeffrey mentioned yesterday. He's like, he came up and he said, you know, I think we're we're an example. Talking about the podcast team, we're an example. Of one of those high functioning teams. Aww. And I was like, I was like, you know what? That's really cool. That's really cool. Well, that is so much due, Naftali, to your leadership. Yeah, your you pulled this together. Innovation. You are Michael and Jordan. Creativity <laughs> and I mean, all the seven C's. Atlantic Sea, Ocean, <laughs> we're all right here. Right? Yeah, I appreciate that. But this is uh, this is the, probably the most fun I have in my job, honestly. It's a great job. This is the most fun uh, that I have. So I, I think we should recreate the Chicago Bulls team <laughs> with our heads on. <laughs> 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 yeah, there we go. The question is... Who is Dennis Rodman? Oh. No, we'll just cut him out. <laughs> so team of, team of four. <laughs> or we'll just have two Pippins. Two Pippins. Uh, yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, we have yeah. Scotty and Pippin. Yeah, and then so together, good. Scotty Pippin. Oh, man. It's two awesome. number 33. Yeah, 33. Yeah. So, so it'll work out. It's our tradition. Uh, I, I don't know how this tradition got started, but I love the tradition. Uh, every time we end our podcast episode... We have a meditation of some sort. And that's the, the sound for our meditation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's somebody <laughs> cool. <laughs> oh, that was great timing. Though. Good timing, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, a, a it's a board member, job, so I'm probably yeah. in trouble. Um. Uh, yeah, we have this meditation that helps us center in, and we hope that you as listeners uh, appreciate the opportunity to just take some time to reflect. Um, and to think about the work that you do, the dreams that you have, um, the effort that you put in to patient care each and every day, um, or to the other work that you're doing aside from patient care. So uh, to take us home, Jeffrey, uh, give us our meditation. All right. Well, I bring today a poem that I dedicate to, to each of you, our, our team, how extraordinary it is to um, be all here together at the same table, and yet at the same time, how ordinary sit with friends and colleagues and to, to talk together about important things. And this poem is called the, the Patience of Ordinary Things, and it's written by poet Adam Schneider. 
It is a kind of love, is it not? How the cup holds the tea. How the chair stands sturdy and four square. How the floor receives the bottoms of shoes or toes. How soles of feet know where they're supposed to be. I've been thinking about the patience of ordinary things. How clothes, how clothes wait respectfully in closets, and soap dries quietly in the dish, and towels drink the wet from the skin of the back, and the lovely repetition of stairs. And what, what is more generous than a window? Thank you so much, and thank you all for listening. Tune in for our next podcast next month. For the Collaborative Family Healthcare's Integrated Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Natalia Serrano. We'll talk to you soon.